Welcome to Antioch Raleigh's weekly online sermon. We hope that you are encouraged by this word. For more information on Antioch Raleigh or access to our other online sermons, visit us at AntiochRaleigh.com. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, let's just pray one more time. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are in our presence, and we acknowledge it, but Lord, we also not just acknowledge it, we see it, we sense it, we, we want to respond this morning, we want to hear from you, we want to hear from your word, and Lord, I ask you grace me so that I can communicate it to the heart and not just the head, in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, um, Every one of us that have been parents and every one of us that have been kids uh, ask the question when we're driving on a long trip. What's the question? Are we there yet? So our our whole series has been, where are we on the map? Well, today, there's the question I want to answer or explore is, are we there yet? And in fact, that, that question... Uh, was a question that the disciples actually wanted uh, from Jesus. Now, they didn't say, are we there yet? But they, they did say, Lord, what is the sign of the end of the age? In other words, when are we going to know we're there? And so today, in the whole, we're doing a series on the five spheres of church. And as I was praying about this, I felt like the Lord said, I need to get our people a little, uh, little bit of orientation. I am really into um, maps. Um, I've had all kinds of prophetic words. Every time, it's like, okay, yeah, I know, I'm, I'm a map guy. Uh, prophetic people always give me these prophecies about how I'm always trying to figure out where we are because that's really part of God's assignment for us as a people as, as a, a person, that is part of my orienteering, if you know what that word means. I want to know where we are on the map. And sometimes we get lost in the map, but what I want to do is create some fixed points for all of us as we are on this journey following Jesus in this life. And so let me just read you um, probably one of the key scriptures on this subject matter. And we're going to explore kind of the context of what I think is often a misunderstanding about the end of the age teaching and theology. And this verse really addresses this. So I'm in Matthew 25, verse 1, and and he's just given them the most detailed explanation of the end of the age and some of the events surrounding it. And he says this, at this time talking about the end of the age, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open up for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't 
know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Okay, can I just say, let, let, me, let me just tell you the punchline of everything I'm going to say. Here's the punchline. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the hour, the day or the hour. Now, it's really fascinating to me. Um, we are given a Bible definition of what an hour is to the Lord. It's indirect, but it's, it's very clear. He's, he, he tells us that a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. So if you do the mathematics on that, and you divide the thousand by 24, an hour to the Lord is about 42 years, which interestingly coincides almost exactly with what most Bible scholars consider a generation. And Jesus talked about a generation. But let me, let me give you a little bit of context, because I really think it's very important to understand. <clears throat> um, the, the older I get, the more I, I, I kind of wish we didn't have chapters in, in our Bibles. And the reason is, be, is because we kind of separate out the story and we lose. When I'm reading a novel, I don't lose perspective on the, all the events that are happening before and after. I kind of I see them all tied together. And somehow chapter and verses often make us just chop up the, the picture so much we don't see it. It's like tiny little puzzle pieces and we never see the big picture. So here's, let me just give you some background. In John chapter 11, Jesus has just done his greatest miracle ever. He raised a, dead, a, a man who had been dead for three days named Lazarus in a little town called Bethany, and it's just outside of Jerusalem. That word immediately gets down to Jerusalem, a few miles away, and um, my, my, uh, my, my, I've got a grandson whose second name is Lazarus, and my daughter's name is Bethany, and Lazarus came from Bethany. That's just kind of a family joke that we are very proud of. So, we, we, and, I lo- and I, I love that song, You Came, Lazarus, by the Helsers, just the resurrection. But anyway, so Jesus goes into Jerusalem and begins to teach in the temple. And Matthew 21 picks up from there, and he starts doing signs and wonders and miracles again in the temple. And the crowds are just a buzz, and the children are saying Hosanna, which means salvation, and they're screaming and just having a grand old time. And every time I see a kid running in church, I love it because I think that's what happened. Kids started running in church for the first time, and it got all the scribes and Pharisees upset, which really is supposed to happen when the Spirit of God comes on kids. And so the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians, this is the, this is the religious class. They are incredibly upset because they're, no one's paying them any more attention. They're just paying attention to Jesus. And they start sending spies to um, ask Jesus trick questions. And of course, one of those is, should we, you know, pay taxes to Caesar or not. And Jesus says, you vipers. I, I really think sometimes we're just too nice. Jesus was very direct when he knew you were representing darkness. Darkness needs to be always called out. It never needs to be compromised. You don't have to be hateful. And Jesus wasn't hateful, but he was very direct. And he said, bring me a, a coin. And he said, whose image is on it? He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And it shut them up, and they all quick left him alone so he could talk to the crowds. And he continued to teach. So Matthew 21 starts with Jesus, Palm Sunday. That's, he walks in. It's Palm Sunday. In, in seven days, he will be on the cross 
He'll be, in fact, he'll, uh, in, fi- in five days he'll be on the cross. In seven days he'll be raised from the dead. So, so we're, we're looking at, from Matthew 21 through Matthew 28, really is the, the, the week before Jesus is crucified, raised from the dead, and then the following 40 days after that. That's, that's it. And in fact, John is the same way. From Matthew, from John chapter 11 through John 21, it's the last week of his life and then some after his resurrection. So when you're reading the scripture, it's good to keep your context of these kind of chapters in your mind. Because think about it this way. Why were the authors writing the book this way? I mean, nearly a third of all of Matthew is about the last week of Jesus' life. And what he said and the conflict he engaged in with the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees. And in one, in one sense, those guys represented every religious class that we encounter out here. There's the really conservative, good, Bible-believing crowd. Then there's the ones that really are very moralistic and believe in the law, but they're not so sure about the supernatural, and they're not real confident in, you know, whether there's an eternity or not, or there's a resurrection. Then there's those who are Herodians. They're just the political class. And there's two kinds of those kind of guys in the United States. There's the really left-leaning, ultra-liberal version, and then there's the really right-leaning, ultra-right version. And, you know, you say, well, Steve, do neither of them have any good points? Hey, all of them had good points. Sadducees said there was a lot of really important things about the law. They taught the law. And the Pharisees believed the law was actually true and that there was a supernatural God. I mean, in fact, part of Jesus' whole sermon was, look, do what these guys say. Don't do what they do. And then after he said that, he got one last trick question, a scribe who said, so what's the most important thing in the law? And you can just see, and Jesus just, he didn't have to, he didn't have a memorized script. He had a heart. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That was... In some respects, when you read the text, it was actually Jesus' last, what I would call, positive teaching. Because after that discourse to the crowds and the masses, he began to have intentional, intense conflict with all the religious leaders. And chapter 23 in Matthew takes us into what he calls the woes. Woe to you, scribe, Pharisees, hypocrites. You blind guides. You, you wash the, whitewash the tombs, but you're full of dead men's bones. I mean, he is not making a very seeker-sensitive message. And he warns them about the judgment every one of them are going to face. And they, they are incensed, and they begin to conspire. To, they, they've been talking about arresting him. Now they're talking about killing him. And then the disciples are walking away with Jesus from the temple that day. And I, you don't know if it was Monday or Tuesday. Might have even been Wednesday. The, the text doesn't really tell us the days, the sequences. But he'd gone to the temple a few days. We know that at least. And now he had every religious class. They all hated him. The left, the right, the middle, everybody hated Jesus. And can I just tell you, part of the end of the age, and this is, this is the really important preceding chapter, his disciples say to him, isn't this a great building? Lord, I mean, I think they were a little uncomfortable. You just rebuked the people we all think are great. You just excoriated every important person that we thought was important in Israel. You have just undressed publicly. 
So this is a really magnificent building. And, of course, Jesus demonstrates his total indifference to those kind of things by saying there's not one of these stones that will be left on top of each other when the end of the age comes. Which, by the way, hasn't actually happened. There's still a wailing wall, and all those walls hadn't tumbled down. So they will, too. A lot of it did get torn down. And nested inside of Matthew 24 is a very obvious prediction about the destruction of Israel and Jerusalem specifically and the temple, which happened in 70 AD. But nested inside that prophecy was the larger prophecy of the end of the age. And Jesus basically gives us a lot of of predictions. And he says there's going to be wars, there's going to be rumors of wars, there's going to be pestilence and plagues and pandemics. There's going to be earthquakes. Don't really pay much attention to all that stuff. That's actually what he said. He said they're just birth pangs. That, that's not the end. And, he, and in fact, if you really look at the scripture, there's only two places where we are told that are definitive signs of the time. One of them is Matthew 24, 14. And this is like an Antioch missional motto. And Jesus said, the gospel of this kingdom will be preached to all the nations, and then the kingdom will come. The end will come, excuse me. This gospel of the kingdom and its righteousness will be preached to every ethnos. That's what the word nations is translated. Last week we had Trey Green, and I'm going to do a little bit of... Trey was supposed to talk about world missions. I'm going to do this in the context of of that statement. How many of you know how many unreached people groups there are in the earth? Okay, well, that's okay. A lot of us don't really know those. We don't keep those in the back of our mind. But right now, there, even 20 years ago, there were like five times as many unreached people groups as there are right now, 20 years ago. And we are at the cusp of a lot of missiological experts are predicting that by the year 2035, Every single known language on the planet will have a New Testament, maybe Psalms and Proverbs, in their language, and we can preach the gospel to every people group. That's one of the reasons we're here. Because that is one of the only, of of really two that I see in Scripture. The other one that Paul makes, kind of as an offhand, he said, "The end, you, you know, all you guys are hearing about Jesus coming. Don't, don't pay attention to all that stuff. Don't pay attention to all these false Christs. Don't, don't, worry your, don't worry your little heads about eschatological teaching that tries to get people to make offerings and get saved. I mean, you know, that's not what the purpose of the teaching of the end times is about. The purpose of the end times is so that you will always stay vigilant in your own personal walk with Jesus. It's that simple. It's not more than that. It's not so we can have great evangelistic altar calls. It's so that you can tend to your heart. It's so that you can be vigilant and not be like one of the unwise, the foolish virgins. So that's kind of the context. The second definitive one is the man of sin has to show up and of course most of us the the man of lawlessness and of course we've all it doesn't say this there but we've assigned that to the antichrist (coughs) um i don't want to mess up any of your eschatology but just a little bit hey you know I really don't know who that person or kingdom is going to be. You say, what do you mean by kingdom, Steve? Well, because throughout the Old Testament, the Lord would personify a kingdom as a person. In fact, he personified them as a beast. Remember Daniel? He talks about the four beasts 
And then the last beast that had ten horns, and it was an incredible beast that would oppress the other beast. And I mean, it's just kind of like a you know little. Uh, it's 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 why in the Jesus movement, the not fully restored would read Daniel and Ezekiel while they were still not free from their drug habit. Uh, and so, so <laughs> if you didn't get that, that's okay. I'm glad you didn't. Uh, but 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 my my whole I, the whole idea here is that we we are we are like I call a lot of. The study of the end times is eschatology, and I, I call it Christian science fiction. It's kind of like we want to, we love novels about this stuff, and we, we create these, we, we want to know, like the disciples, when's it going to happen? Is it going to happen next week? And Jesus is saying, look, you guys aren't getting this. I don't even know. The Father knows. But you can't understand the season and the times but regardless, there's going to be some delays. So let's go into this. All right. Are you with me so far? You say, well, so my sphere that I'm supposed to teach about today, let's throw that up there, is you and your relationship with Jesus. And look, this, if there's one thing we talk about in this church is having a relationship with Jesus. We, we obsess over it. We want to make sure you're learning how to have a relationship with Jesus. But I want to put this in the context of the urgency for which you have a relationship with Jesus. I'm going to read this scripture to you. It's out of the book of Revelation to give you a little bit of context for this Matthew 25 verse. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Did y'all notice we had a little roaring going on today? We're practicing. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Now, there is going to be a wedding. And in fact, Jesus comes in Jerusalem on a fold of a donkey's colt. And he is Hosanna. He's, he's heralded as the king. But it's very interesting. Jesus, in Matthew, I believe it's Matthew 22, he starts talking about a parable about the wedding feast, and everybody's invited. And then he uses this parable because Jesus, like any expecting bridegroom, is ready. I have never met a bridegroom yet that was like, it's like let's get the wedding over. Let's, let's get it done. Let's, let's get there. I, I'm, you know, every bridegroom and every bride that are madly, passionately in love with each other cannot wait for that day. And can I just tell you, that is the heart of Jesus. His heart beats for you and me and this church and the church of Jesus Christ in the world. He is passionately, and you know, he's patient, but he's saying, Father, I'd really like to know the time. And on our part, there's a, this mysterious verse talking about out of Peter where it says, hastening the day of the Lord. Is it just possible? Is it possible? I don't know. I, I'm more than willing to be corrected on this. But is it possible, based on that verse, that we have some responsibility for it? The Spirit and the bride say come in the book of Revelation. The Spirit and the church say come. So the bride of Christ is the church. In fact, let me read you another verse out of... Um, oh, it's out of... Corinthians, I think I missed it. I left it out. But it's, he said, I have betrothed you 
as a pure virgin to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's 2 Corinthians 9, maybe. But Paul is talking about how this church, this Corinthian church, you know, this problematic church, he's saying, I've betrothed you as a bride to Jesus. So this is the metaphor we're talking about. Now, I want you to notice some things about this this parable. First of all, there's ten virgins. There's no bride. Uh, And there's a bridegroom, and there's somebody shouting that he's coming. So that's kind of the context, and part of it is Jesus' parables are, they're, they're not perfect symmetry with the, the metaphorical picture he's painted for the whole of our existence in relationship with him. I mean, guys, I, I just got news for you. You can get used to being thought of as a bride. It might take a little bit of stretch. It did for me. But you can be, you are part of a bride. You have been chosen and the bridegroom is coming for you. And he wants you to get ready. And we collectively are that people. The bride is not this mysterious individual any more than I think maybe the Antichrist is this mysterious individual. Could be completely wrong on that. But what we are facing, are we going to be a company that is madly in love with our bridegroom, or are we going to be distracted by the kingdoms of this world that are vying for our attention and the lawlessness that is coming upon the earth? That's the, that is the absolute hallmark of the end of the age, is unmitigated lawlessness throughout culture in every kingdom of the earth. And I could point that out to you, but it's another sermon. So let's look at this. Um, You've got the bridegroom, you've got the bride, you've got five wise virgins, and you have five foolish virgins. You have lamps and you have jars of oil. So these are kind of the elements of this story. And I just want to go through... Really what Jesus was getting at was there are those who are wise virgins and those, there are those who are foolish virgins. Now, that scripture that I just quoted from Paul, he said, I've betrothed you as a pure virgin to the Lord. When you meet Jesus, you are automatically transferred from the kingdom of darkness and I, this isn't about sexuality, even though it may include that. It's about the life of sin that you were brought out of. And you have been betrothed to Jesus, perfect. And that's what the atoning blood of Jesus is for. It's not only for your past sins, but any that you commit in the future. As you stumble your way toward the cross to become conformed into the image of Jesus. So the whole purpose of your being saved is not so you can stay the way you were. It's to be become a bride without spot or wrinkle or any such things, according to Paul's description of the bride in the book of Ephesians. So we are to be a, a, a spotless, wrinkle-free bride. And the Lord is, is doing that, and it's wonderful in our midst. But here's some really cautionary reasons we need to be vigilant. And I'm just going to give you some, just read them off to you. Wise disciples expect the return of the Lord to be delayed. Foolish disciples lose patience. Wise disciples eagerly anticipate the bridegrooms appearing in the last day. While foolish disciples live for the moment as if there was no day of accounting. How many of you, this is what's so so troubling about this verse. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. Don't take your lamps and put them under bushels. Who's he talking to there? He's talking to the church. He's talking to believers. I'm, I'm going to just say this. I don't believe there's a foolish virgin in this room. 
And part of why I'm teaching this is so there will never be a foolish virgin. There is going to be a day of accounting. We will all stand before the Lord. And by the way, that day of accounting, I know, oh gosh, that feels so heavy. Even when I say it, it feels heavy. It's also a rewards banquet. You know that cup of water you gave to a stranger? That, that's going to get a lavish reward. You're going to go, Jesus, no, I don't need, yes, yes. Oh, and the whole crowd's going to go crazy over your cup of water. And when you choose to love your enemy, that's going to be an incredible reward. See, that, so, so, so here's the question. How do you keep your oil filled in your jars? Well, we're going to think about that. Wise disciples, oh, wise, number C, wise disciples keep vigilant and prepared while foolish disciples are lax and negligent. So how do you stay prepared? Wise disciples know they don't know the hour and think about it often, while foolish disciples have no time, no idea what time it is at all. And they're not thinking about it. Can I just tell you, I I don't need to think about the day of the Lord as the end of the age. I just mostly think about the end, the end of my days. I'm preparing for that. And it could be tomorrow because I don't know. I don't think it is. I think I have some promises that that's not going to happen. But you know what? I'm ready to go. I'm almost raring to go. Because I am so excited. Except I, I'm kind of, I'm wanting more rewards. So, you know. I'd like to delay it for a while. <clears throat> Wise disciples know how to keep from losing heart in face of delays, while foolish disciples don't seem to care. They know how to manage the pain of delay. They know how to deal with disappointments of unanswered prayer. They know how to deal with weariness of praying for children that don't follow Jesus. They know how to deal with times when everything around them makes them feel depressed. And they deal ruthlessly with unbelief. Wise disciples are ready to replenish their lamps while foolish disciples forget they have jars that can be filled. Wow, that's, you go, did you realize that the, the five foolish disciples had jars with them? They were so indifferent to the fact that they needed to be filled that those jars were empty when they needed them not to be. And this is why I say over and over again, you know, practice praying for little things so that when the big things come, you have the faith for them. Because when those things come and you are living your life in different, I pray about everything. Thank the Lord. Talk to him about everything in your business. I just heard an amazing story about a, an, a, one of the most amazing doctors here at Rex Hospital, he's a gastro guy, and he everybody says his pay. All the other doctors say this about him, and and the reason I know this testimony is because it's somebody that told me he he'd worked on her, and she got healed. And this is an eighty-six-year-old woman. Okay, so she's she's fragile, and she she said that this doctor goes in to his surgeries. And there's nothing he does that he doesn't pray about while he's doing surgery. He goes, Lord, what do you want me to do here? He's a surgeon. He's trained. He knows what to do. No, he doesn't. He knows the human body is a mystery. He knows that he, he, he would rather be dependent on God than independent and self-sufficient. And that's how you keep your oil. You stay dependent on Jesus. You live your life utterly dependent on him every breath of your day. And you go, yeah, I'm really busy. I got all this stuff. Then you're too busy. All your stuff needs to be his stuff. Okay. Wise disciples know where to get oil, how to keep the extra jar sufficiently filled with oil while the foolish ones seem to have no idea. See, the, the wise ones told them where to go buy the oil. They said, you got to go get it yourself. You see, you, wise disciples never try to live off the oil of other disciples. Foolish disciples borrow their affection for the bridegroom and the bride. 
Wow. Hey, you know what? I really love the fact that young believers, they need to be brought into the family. They need to be encouraged to walk with Jesus around other believers. But can I just tell you, at some point, you have to learn how to get your own oil. I'm kind of looking at the college students. I can look at the... Where's the old people? (laughs) We all have to learn how to receive oil from Jesus on a daily basis. Hey, as I was, uh, here's here's just a little example. Lord said, hey, I want you to look at your dream book. I got an answer for you uh, about your message. And so this is my dream book. I I write down dreams in this. This is the only book I have for dreams. It's my latest book on dreams. And I, I read this dream. This is a brand new book. So this is 2015. Uh, 6 11 2000. I dreamed that I saw a very well known prophetic guy, I won't use his name, in a grocery store. I asked him if he was storing up food for the end times. He said, No. The food you need in the end times is going to be daily bread. And if you try to store more than a little of it, it's going to go to waste and spoil. You got to stay prepared. You got to, you need to have a daily intimate walk with Jesus. That's the invitation every single day. All right, I, I'm gonna, I got to get to my. Okay, let me let me skip down to um, number. Uh, you can get these notes later. Uh, number M. I don't know if they're they're not doing. Are they doing M? Oh, they they've changed it. Oh, no, they didn't. There we go. Here we go. Wise disciples learn that the key to watching is learning how to wait on the Lord while the foolish are in a hurry to go nowhere. Wise disciples know that waiting creates desire for the bridegroom, while waiting only bores foolish disciples. Notice I'm using the term disciples. I'm not trying to make some sort of salvation distinction here. I'm trying to make a a warning that Jesus evidently made. Wise disciples know that waiting is an act of love, while foolish disciples think it's a waste of time. Wise disciples know that waiting changes us into the Father's image. Deep things of God are discovered by those who learn to cultivate and live a prioritized life around waiting on the Lord. Now, the key component of watching is waiting because you, there's a vigilance, there's an attitude. of. But, but can I just tell you, one of the most interesting things, and I hear a lot of young believers, they don't, this is why they don't like prayer meetings, is because prayer meetings can tend to feel, frankly, stunningly boring. I led an intercessory, Brenda and I led an intercessory prayer ministry for several years in a big church, a lot bigger than this one, and we had fewer people than volunteer for toilet duty, toilet cleaning duty. But I want to just tell you, there is nothing like waiting on the Lord, and I'm going to read you something straight out of my Uh, some of my journal entries because this is what the Lord showed me many, many years ago. You know that verse that says, eyes not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered the heart of man, the things that Christ Jesus has prepared for them that love him. That's 1 Corinthians 2, 9. It's one of my favorite verses. A lot of us love that verse. It's not only about this life, but especially about the life to come. Well, Paul is quoting Isaiah 64, but Isaiah 64 doesn't say it exactly that way. Paul, re, he kind of retranslates it. And here's what Isaiah 64 says. No eye is seen, a God beside you, who acts for those who wait on him. See, the apostle Paul equated waiting on the Lord as the same thing as loving the Lord. You shall love the Lord with all your heart. Maybe you need to learn to wait for Him. 
A lot of us have a quiet time and we're in a hurry to get it done and we're not interested in actually spending time alone with Jesus. And we don't sit there and wait and wait. And he, 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 I'll, let me just say this. He will test you to see if you really want him to show up. Because he will delay, just like he delays for the whole earth, he will delay for you. Are you passionate? Do you want him? And let me just tell you what happens. As you wait on the Lord Jesus, you begin to accelerate your passion for him. So let me me read this. To love God is to wait on him. Our human clock becomes synchronized with God's eternal clock as we wait. Like the awakening of the dawn, we gradually become aware of the vast nowness of God. We begin to absorb His gracious, unflappable demeanor as we marinate in His placid and imperturbable sovereignty. Circumstances and their immediate clamor lose their incessant demands and false importance as time expands into eternity's perspective. No longer can anxiety and fear and impatience or discontent dominate and invade all my waking thoughts as I become distracted, listen, to the disproportionately massive presence of God. Waiting on God calibrates my internal environment regardless of the external circumstances that I am facing. Negative emotions are replaced by tranquility, joy, and patience. As an aside, start noticing when Jesus would go away to pray, there was always a, the eruption of some sort of crisis, nearly, or massive ministry that he was doing. This is, by the way, this is always an inside job. God rarely affects my exterior before he transforms my interior. Many of us would find many of those nasty circumstances surrounding our lives begin to melt away as we wait on him in his presence. The Lord is waiting on us to wait. So much of our impatience results from the inverse of waiting on the Lord. Instead, we wait on the world systems or ourselves or others. Waiting on all these externals gives us the same anxiety that they have. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. When we receive Jesus into our lives, we're invited into the peace of the universe that is his. But allowing him to set up shop is another thing that may require a lifetime of practice. Here's how he works his peace into our lives. The Lord conveys his character and grace as we abide in his presence. This is God's process. It's an initial step for us to move from the land of anxiety to the new territory of freedom and joy. It's an initial step for our spiritual development. It is a step that must be frequently returned to for us Without a waiting, attentive heart, we are plagued by pride, arrogance, impatience, haste, temperamental fits in the low-voltage humming atmosphere of angry anxiety in our lives. We emit a warning beacon to those around us, step back and stay away. We become unapproachable, testy, and reactive. Without a waiting heart, healthy self-love that lives in God's acceptance of us is reduced to us becoming nothing more than religious performers who gain acceptance out of meeting obligations, not meeting them anything out of passion and love. Waiting on the Lord is like oxygen to a deprived firefighter or a swimmer who's been underneath water. It's like a glass of water to a weary desert refugee. When we access heaven's gates by waiting, relief begins to flood our being. We're satisfied. 
This is when the exchange takes place. And can I just tell you, I never noticed, I never perceived this exchange, not one time for the first few months I did this. But here's what happened. But it happens. My stuff for his. Isaiah 40, 31 actually starts to become a reality. My feeble strength is exchanged for the strength that will not dissipate. I will soar with wings of eagles. While young men weary, I won't. With newfound capabilities that are impossible otherwise, I soar above my circumstances. Waiting on the Lord is the ultimate in spiritual sustainability. If you've never done it, it's never too late to start. I would say uh, I spent, I mean, I think I've been following Jesus since 1973. That's what, 48 years, I believe. I, I hate to say that I didn't learn this until really the last eight, nine years. And I'm an infant in this, but can I just tell you, when, when, when all hell begins to break out in my life, it is a really good reminder that I need to go and just wait on the Lord. And it is just stunning what happens. I begin, my clock begins to get the eternal perspective synchronized with God's eternity. He is unperturbed about anything in this universe. He has solved all the problems already. He is the eternal alpha, the past, and the eternal future, the omega. And he sees the beginning from the end, and he knows the outcome of every one of our lives and circumstances. And you can begin to live with and in him as you wait on the Lord, which is the key component of becoming a watcher. And then you will have oil so abundant that maybe you can slosh over into some negligent ones. But I net. I I want to be one of those wise virgins, don't you? So let's all stand up and pray. If you've noticed, what I've talked about is about your own personal relationship and relationship with the church that you're a part of. Us, it's a me. The Lord wants to personally relate to you, but he also wants to relate to us as a church. That's why, by the way, all of you, every single Tuesday morning at 9 o'clock, we have prayer for this church. The, t- the staff takes people and we pray. So you, everybody is invited to that. It's not just for s- staff. 9 o'clock. Wednesday. Well, excuse me, Wednesday. That's why I, I have notes. <laughs> Don't let Steve go without notes. And then Sunday morning, every Sunday at 9.15, down in the old fellowship hall where the kitchens are, not, not the one directly under here, but over there in the education building. Um, you, you can find it. Again, it's really popular. There was only five of us this morning, six maybe. But, hey, I want to encourage you. I don't want to guilt you. This is, this is about you saying, you know what? I'm going to start waiting and watching with God's people, but I'm going to start waiting and watching. Can I just tell you, if you need to get up an extra 30 minutes, you can do it. You know, as you get older, your body goes, you got to do it. You're not going to sleep past 630. You're awake. I'd like to go back to sleep. No, you're awake. Get up. Well, you know what? It's wonderful. You know, I... Learning how to just go and sit and say, Lord, I'm here for you. I'm waiting to be loved by you. This is one of my favorite prayers. Lord, I know I'm a responder, so show me how much you love me. We love him because he first loved us. I'm a responder. I can't generate this. I'm going to love God. I'm going to love God. No, you got to let God love you. And as the Lord Jesus comes in and embraces you, as you sit there in his presence, 
meditating in His Word. Just say, Lord, I, I don't know that I get all this. Ask Him questions. And He will come. And It's amazing. I, I, I get so distracted when I'm trying to study for a sermon because every verse that is just a peripheral one just explodes. It's like the Lord's going, hey, you want some more? You want some more? I mean, I'm like, Lord, you have ADHD too. I mean, the Lord's just like, isn't this great? Yes, Lord. I have a sermon on Sunday. Don't worry about it. I hope you got something out of this. So I just want to invite you to say, hey, I want to be part of the watching crowd. I want to be part of that crowd that watches for you, Lord Jesus. If there's some areas, and and I, I just want to share this last thing. About six months ago, very prophetic guy said, I, I fear and trembling. He said, Steve, I just feel like the Lord said, uh, there's a first love thing going on, and the Lord wants you. You know, he was, he was apologizing for telling me I'd lost my first love. And I, I was kind of like, huh. So I went back to Ephesians. I was judging it. And the Lord said, Yeah. You're really faithful. And you really get a lot of things right. But you've kind of drifted in your affections for Jesus. You know what? I don't care if I'm a good pastor as long as I'm a really good lover of Jesus. Following after him. And you know what? All that other pastor stuff will just work out. But if I try to be good and professional and get it right, I'll get it wrong. And, And so will you. Whatever you're doing, if you're a mom, you go, I don't have time. I'm too busy. Yes, he's, he's trying to teach you how to walk with. He's, he's, he learned how to do all this stuff with the father while he was in the carpenter shop. He'll teach you. He wants to. He's very practical. He's not all religious. He's your friend. So I just want to invite you. If some of you have gotten cold in your affection for the Lord. I, I just had this, I mean, look, I've done this so many times in my life. I just feel the embers getting low, and I'm just, I'm kind of, I get real distracted. I get distracted by spiritual stuff. So it's easy to do. There's no, this is why he, he's constantly coming to us and beseeching us. So if you feel a coldness, that's, you, you say, I, I don't want to be cold. I want to be burning hot. I want to be one of those vigilant ones that knows how to rest but still have our, our oils filled with, our lamps filled with oil and our jars of extra supply. So elders, come forward. Life group leaders, if you need to be prayed for, if you want to just say, hey, I just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm re-upping for a zeal for following Jesus, then please. Come forward and commit yourself to that this morning. Amen.